Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource, here with John Fenstewalt, Editor-at-Large of EdSource. Welcome, John. Always a pleasure, Lewis. Well, John, this week we're going to be looking at a really emotional issue in California. This week, President Trump is proposing to repeal or is calling for the repeal, or has repealed, depending on how one looks at it, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, which affects close to 250,000 young people in California. And we'll also be looking at a very interesting report by Michael Fullen. He's a professor from Ontario who's been working very closely in California at the reforms that are currently underway, the local control funding formula and the related reforms. Before we get to that report, we're going to talk first with Carolyn Jones, a reporter at EdSource, who has been looking into reaction to the DACA plan or repeal proposed by the Trump administration. Carolyn, what are schools and universities doing in response to this announcement, which really has gotten a lot of people upset in the state? Well, yeah, understandably, yeah. I mean, a lot of young people could face deportation over this. So as a result, University of California, Cal State University, the community college system, high schools, school districts are really trying hard to reassure their students right now that they're still welcome there. They will still be able to receive state financial aid. And for the moment, to just not panic, sit tight, and they're offering legal services, legal referrals, help for families, all sorts of services to to reassure students right now. And the Attorney General, Javier Becerra, has said he is going to file a suit. Uh, Interesting that he hasn't joined a suit from a bunch of other Attorney Generals, but what's happening on that front? That's right. He said he plans to file a lawsuit on behalf of the immigrants in California. The the governor, the state superintendent of public instruction, they've all come out and said that immigrants are a very important, a crucial part of California's economy, and the state will do what it can to protect them. But just to clarify, the universities and colleges are trying to create a welcoming environment and saying they will not themselves participate in this, but Can they actually protect these students from being deported? No, no. Immigration laws are federal, and so the federal agents could deport these young people. I think one of the questions is uh, California is is a state with so many immigrants. There's been a lot of activism. Are these students going to shrink into the shadows where many of them were before this DACA program? Or is there going to be a lot of activism? And are they going to be willing to be out front and, and putting their faces in the media and elsewhere? Well, what I've seen so far is that there is a lot of fear, but there is a lot of anger as well. And a lot of community activists are really trying hard to, to get people to come out and speak out and protest and make their voices heard and talk to their representatives. Representatives, and they point out, rightfully so, that it was these young people that fought for DACA to begin with and made it happen and came out of the shadows then to fight for this. And they're hoping that that activist spirit will continue. Well, very interesting. Uh, and in fact, Sarah Tan, our producer, went to the UC Berkeley campus this week to talk to some of the DACA students. And um, we're going to hear from them. So, Sarah, you went up to the Berkeley campus. Uh, what was happening up there? So I went up and it was coincidentally actually an orientation for undocumented students that was happening on that day. There were about 200 or so undocumented students and allies who were attending. And um, yeah, I was able to catch a couple and speak with them. So one of the students you talked to was Myra Lozano. 
Could you just tell us a little bit about her? Sure. Yeah. Myra is a senior at Berkeley, and uh, her family immigrated from Mexico when she was four years old. So she has been living in this country for a while now. She's 21. And this was her reaction to DACA being repealed. I mean, when I found out yesterday, at first I was upset. I was really sad um, just because, you know, being able to have DACA allowed me to, like, apply to a lot of scholarships and do a lot of things that I wouldn't have been able to do without it. But it, most of all, it helped me um, help my family financially. I became one of their biggest, like, sources of income. And kind of going through, like, not being able to work anymore um, and helping them in that way I guess it has been like the biggest source of like emotion for me. Um, but with that being said, I think that it's important and it's such a great reminder for even including us folks who a lot of people refer to us as dreamers, as the people that, you know, we're the good immigrant, we're the people that deserve to be here. And then they criminalize my parents or criminalize our parents when, I don't know, I think that it's important to ask, you know, like I saw this a lot being shared by my peers, like, Ask yourself, how far would your parents go to give you a better life, right? And I think about that all the time. I'm like, my parents deserve to be here just as much as I do, not just because I go to UC Berkeley. That was Myra Lozano, a senior at Berkeley who is also a DACA recipient. What is the situation? When does her DACA eligibility expire? So her DACA expires in October of 2018, so she will not be eligible to renew it this coming October. But just to clarify, the DACA program expires in six months, but if you have eligibility or however long your two-year term is still in effect, you will keep your eligibility until then. So, so what is her situation then? Right now, she's essentially, she's looking to graduate UC Berkeley in the coming spring, and she is looking to go to law school. She studied pre-law while she's at Berkeley. Uh, yeah, she wonders uh, whether she should go ahead with her law school plans, and if she does, how she's going to pay for it. I went through it. I was like, hey, should I even go to law school? Because then how am I going to pay for like loans, or how am I going to apply for certain scholarships that do ask me for this nine-digit number? But I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to continue on. Like, I'm going to apply. Like, I called my parents and my dad just told me, you know, like, there's people that just are so afraid of us. They want to set us back as far behind in the race as possible. And that's kind of my mentality right now. They're just putting more obstacles, but I'm just going to try to keep jumping them. And I read this in a book and I forgot where it was. But, you know, like, as long as people continue to build these walls, like, we're going to keep digging holes. Sarah, you also talked with Juan Prieto. He just graduated from UC Berkeley. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Juan is 25, um, and he graduated from Berkeley this past spring. He's been in the country for 16 years. His family immigrated also from Mexico back in 2001. So he came here when he was nine years old, effectively. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, he's grown up here. And, you know, I think more than fear, he's feeling very frustrated right now. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a sensationalism of the fear and the scared undocumented student that's happening throughout the media. And I feel more frustration than fear. I'm frustrated that exactly what we said would happen if we settled for DACA happened. You know, DACA was an unstable ground on which we tried walking and it just sort of collapsed beneath us as it was created to do so. Uh, Obama didn't create DACA. Well, first of all, Obama didn't create DACA. It was a community-led effort to achieve a, a relief for a moment so that we could keep fighting for the rest of the community. But what ended up happening is a lot of people got complacent after DACA was passed. And so 
yeah, I feel frustrated that exactly what was what some organizers were saying happened and that people are falling back into the same narrative of, well, I'm deserving because I have a 4.5 GPA as opposed to I'm deserving because I'm a human being uh, worthy of dignity and basic human rights. That was Juan Prieto. He's a recent graduate from UC Berkeley, and uh, his DACA registration is actually up for renewal in the next six months, so he will be doing that. So that means he can uh, apply, and it can be renewed for two more years under the terms that Jeff Sessions announced this week. Yes. Um, So he will be going ahead and reapplying for that. But, you know, he said uh, there are some younger students than him uh, who may be reacting a little differently. Yeah, so I I lived without DACA for a while. Uh, And so I do remember just anxiety every morning, being afraid of whether or not I was going to be deported. But you learn to sort of live with that and navigate the world through a lens of survival, not to romanticize that uh, situation at all. But I feel that from that is where a lot of the frustration to build a movement came from. Well, Sarah, really interesting. It's great to get the voices of these young people, and we'll be doing more of that in the future. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Lewis. So, Lewis, this week you wrote about the possibility that Congress may permanently solve this problem. What do you think? Well, the problem, John, is that this whole immigration debate is just super complicated, and it's really clouded by actually 9-11 this catastrophic event that happened 16 years ago. And this has just cast a cloud over the whole immigration debate because it's become really infused with concerns about security and terrorism. It's hard to remember that just days before 9-11, the United States was on the cusp of coming up with some comprehensive immigration reform legislation. Vicente Fox, the president of Mexico, visited Washington He was there on a state visit hosted by George W. Bush. He addressed a joint session of Congress, got a standing ovation, and uh, Bush actually indicated for the first time that he would consider some kind of legalization program, green cards, for uh, some undocumented immigrants. And it was a time of great hope that something, this, this real deadlock over immigration reform would be broken. But uh, as I say, within days, 9-11 happened. And since then, it's been almost impossible to get any form of legalization through Congress. So the notion that this is somehow going to get done in the next six months is it's a stretch. Let's put it that way. Yes, but I think the election of President Trump really was a different dynamic, too. He really poisoned the debate. If there was any prospect, when he came along, started talking about uh, the immigrants jumping over the border, being drug uh, smugglers, et cetera. He changed the whole discussion dynamic, made it even harder to get a compromise through. So now he's bringing up the DACA and he's saying, throw it to Congress. But at the same time, he's saying, I want a comprehensive solution, right? Well, that's another another complication. He's not just saying, okay, do this, fix this DACA thing. He has been saying that he wants this to be part of a big fix and he's thrown in there, they're even talking about wanting changes in the legal immigration system to move from a system based on family reunification to one that's based more on worker skills and admitting immigrants who can contribute directly to the U.S. economy. That's just going to be really tough to get through. So it's really exasperating, frankly, listening to him talk. On one hand, he says, I love these children. Congress solved this. And if you don't, uh, I'll be back at the same time he's sending these very mixed signals about what 
Congress should do for him to approve it? Well, I think that's the point, is that it's also going to be very, very hard to predict what's going to happen over the next six months. Even in the last few days, the president is backtracking a little bit on this, saying, oh, if Congress can't resolve this, he'll revisit the issue. So very hard to predict. But uh, I think what we can expect is that uh, six months to take on this usually complicated and emotional issue is going to be very tough. We're back again with John Fensterwald. John, we're going to be talking about Michael Fullen's report on what's happening on the California reform front. Michael has been looking very closely at how the reforms, the local control funding formula has been playing out in California. He is a professor emeritus in the School of Education at the University of Toronto. He's been working very closely with the California Department of Education, with several school districts around the state, so hugely knowledgeable. So, John, what did uh, Michael Fullen have to say in this report? Yeah, when Michael Fullen writes, people in California tend to pay attention because Michael has sort of been a leading force in some of the changes that California has been doing over the last five years. He wrote a paper in 2011, talked about the wrong drivers of education. It was a really harsh critique of No Child Left Behind and this top-down mandates for prescriptions on how to fix a school. And there are a lot of people in California that were at the same time as a passage of a local control funding formula, which took a really different approach. And so Michael provided sort of the philosophical basis for a lot of what California has been doing. And he's also been consulting. He's been going around the state with with districts and networks of districts. He met with Governor Brown. He's talked with Tom Torlickson, the state superintendent, and the staff at uh, Department of Education. And he doesn't just talk about wrong drivers, he also talks about the right drivers of change. Absolutely, exactly right. And he's saying that California, with its local control funding formula and its local control and accountability plans, they're all the right drivers for change that are more collaborative. Leadership is based within school districts. It's local control. He's supportive of that. So he's taking stock of where we are now. And actually, it's a very frank and sober report. Because what he's saying is the implementation itself may stumble or is stumbling because there are some key elements missing. And he's saying, you know, you can't really focus on the mechanics of a local control and accountability plans that districts do. You really need to pay attention to what's happening in classrooms and classroom instruction. And so he raises the question. And he raises questions, suggests that at this point, the, the agencies that are charged for implementing this, which would be the State Department of Education, county offices of education, 58 of them, and a new agency called the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. It's a small agency. He's saying, I don't know, and people I've talked with in California don't know whether these agencies at this point are able to work with districts and do the deeper reforms and improvements that are necessary for this system to succeed. But you, t- you talk with Michael, right? I did. I talked with him, uh, and it's a 26-page report. It's really interesting to read. And I talked to Michael, and I, I asked him, basically, you know, to summarize what it is that you found. The report itself says, yes, it's in the right direction, but uh, there's a worry that people should have. And that worry is, uh, I called it, one phrase I used in the report was the superficial implementation of the right drivers. In other words, you're on the right track, 
but you're not implementing what needs to be done with enough uh, precision or focus or emphasis or coordination. And that's a big worry because if it doesn't get addressed, the, uh, the what people call the right track will start to close up and other things that I think are going to be less affected by way of policy are likely to come into play. So I asked, also asked Michael, I said, okay, well, we know what they shouldn't be paying attention to. So what should the county offices and the State Department and this new collaborative, what should they be focusing on? What improvements should they spend a lot of attention and work with districts on? The focus is to really start changing in, a, in, a very, in an important way, the way that some districts have, but most haven't, uh, the way that uh, students and teachers relate to each other. Uh, the effectiveness of the pedagogy and the relationships and the things that need to be done to make the learning engaging on the one hand and productive on the other hand. So the, 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 my one concern is that that's not happening at the level of detail. Michael Fullen's key point in this report is that we assume that under local control, if you give more freedom to districts, they will improve their schools. They will grab this opportunity and improvements will happen. But what he's finding, what others are saying, is it's a lot harder job to do that. And districts themselves have been used to these sort of mandates from No Child Left Behind. And, you know, it, it takes a certain capacity and capabilities to do this. So I asked him about that, what it is that he's discovered about districts' ability to do the reforms themselves. It was assumed if you gave a lot of freedom that the majority of districts would uh, be up to, the, you know, up to the task and step in and do it, and then you could pay attention to those that were struggling, a smaller number. Well, it turns out the majority of districts didn't know, you know what to do uh, under the new freedom. So, so, uh, so that's really what, what was the big surprise. I did a book last year called Freedom From uh, Compared to Freedom To. And freedom from is when you get rid of constraints like bureaucracy that's wrong, wrong minded. Freedom to is what do you do when you've got the opportunity? Well, it turns out, I think, that the districts did not have those cultures. Those few districts like Sanger, Garden Grove, Long Beach, they had stepped in and done it, but they were very much in the minority. They weren't the norm. So what we really need to do now is uh, see that uh, people really say, this isn't as, it's just not a matter of having the freedom. We've got to do something new. What does new look like and how do we get better at it? Well, what does Michael Fullen say about what we need to be looking at over the next uh, year or two? Well, Michael Fullen says it's, he uses the word precarious. He says that the whole effort for reform is in danger we, unless we get these systems in place, unless the counties and this new collaborative and the State Department show that they have a plan to work with districts and they can show what these kinds of improved instruction look like, and then we will begin to see the results. But he's saying you simply can't ask for time. You have to go back and show state leaders and the public that we actually have a path and a direction that will lead to improvement under this local control. So it's his prod not to take not to take for granted that you simply have time to do this. Now's the time to actually get those agencies working together. It's a call for action. Okay, well, very interesting. Uh, I can't let this podcast come to an end without noting that we are still waiting for the statewide results on Smarter Balanced. I gather that we are now looking at the week of September 18th before those scores come out. That's right. We said last week that may not be this week, but it would be before the state board meets 
on next Wednesday. And so now we're saying, no, it won't be then. It'll be the following week. Maybe we should tape this so that we can replay it next week as well. <laughs> but just quickly, does this make any difference when it's released? I mean, the schools have their scores and the parents have their scores, most of them. I mean, the vast majority at this point. So, so what, what difference does it really make when these, these results are released? Well, a week or so probably won't make a difference, but it is no question that this is a third year of scores and a lot of people are anticipating them and want to see if there's both progress for all groups and whether there's a narrowing of the achievement gaps for at least some groups. And uh, we can only see what's happening on a statewide level when the scores are actually released by the state. That's right. And John, you'll be attending the State Board of Education meeting, which is it's, it's uh, every other month. It has its meeting in Sacramento. Uh, they'll be looking at the state plan to meet the requirements of the Every Student Succeeds Act to send to the Trump administration. And I gather you think that this is going to go through, no problem? Well, this is one thing that won't be delayed. The deadline for sending to Washington is September 18th. So something will happen next week and likelihood it will be passed in its current draft. Okay, terrific. Well, appreciate your thoughts. That just about wraps it up for this week. I'm Lewis Friedberg, here with John Fensterwald, along with Sarah Tan, our producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>